Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now we've reached the 93rd sermon in our sermon series on Luke's Gospel, and this evening's study is chapter 22, verses 54 through 71, page 883 in your Pew Bible. Now as we come to this evening's study, we should ask ourselves a simple question. Why is it that Luke has dedicated his longest chapter to the events of just one 24-hour day, namely the day of Passover. It is because Luke has written a gospel, not a biography of the Lord Jesus, a gospel of the Lord Jesus. We know that he uniquely wrote it for a specific person, his patron Theophilus. And he hoped by writing it that he would persuade his patron to come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus. So Luke pauses at key points in the good news, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, to spend a much longer portion of his narrative to focus on one aspect and then another and another of our Savior's life and of his ministry. He dedicated more words to the months before Jesus' birth and his birth itself and early life than the other Gospels combined. He established his lineage and his title as the last Adam, uniquely amongst the four. He paused to explain in greater detail his ministry in bringing salvation to the marginalized, to women, the widow, Gentiles, tax collectors, criminals, Roman soldiers. But he's dedicated the most of his space to our Lord Jesus' resolve to go to Jerusalem. To go to Jerusalem with a singular purpose, to suffer and to die. After the transfiguration, in the middle of chapter 9, and we continue resolutely journeying to Jerusalem until we reached chapter 21. That's 12 chapters dedicated to that purpose and that resolve. And then his final week in Jerusalem and its temple. And now the longest chapter on the very day of Passover, one day. We've not studied a list of events here. Rather, we have studied a list of events that all have a specific meaning. Luke underlines 
how the gospel of the Lord Jesus is embedded in key narratives and key types of office in the Old Testament scriptures. In other words, Jesus is to die for the sins of the people. He does not die as a martyr for some political cause or because of some aspect of social justice. He dies as mediator, both God and man. Luke takes such pains so that we do not just understand what happened in the life of the Lord Jesus, but why, why it happened. And so Theophilus, and by extension, you and me, may be firmly persuaded that what was established in the Old Testament scriptures reaches its fulfillment in this unique person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is with that understanding that we can now come to these next three events that Luke describes as chapter 22 draws to its close. Now we saw last time how just as he established the fullness of the person of the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane by telling us again and again how he was our mediator both God and man. Here we see how Luke sets out three categories of rejection of that very same office as the mediator. It's summarized in the question put to him by the council in verse 67. If you are the Christ, tell us. And the title is the key. That is the key that unlocks the fullness of the Old Testament scriptures that we have studied for so long as we've journeyed through Luke's gospel. All through Luke's gospel, we have seen humanity divide according to the answer that they give to this very question. Is Jesus the Christ? Or is he not? Either deny the Lord Jesus or trust the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. In other words, we can see that the term is used deliberately in this way so that Luke can draw upon three great offices of the Old Testament scriptures. Offices for which the holder receives a special anointing. In the Greek translation, a chrism. They are Christos. They are anointed. There are three, the priest, the prophet, and the king. All anointed, all Christs, so that they might assume their office. And the Old Testament scriptures had understood that there would come one who was the prophet, the prophet greater than Moses. That one day, a greater priest 
and the tribal Levitical priesthood would appear, anointed to a different order, a permanent one, according to the order of Melchizedek, who would offer the great sacrifice, the final sacrifice for the sins of the people. And there was to come a king, a shoot of the stump of Jesse, greater than David, who would rule his people forever in righteousness from one end of the earth to the other. All these three are gathered together in the times in which in Luke's gospel we hear of the Christ who has come from the announcement of the angelic host to the shepherds to hear now in mockery in the council of the elders of Jerusalem. These three are the substance of the rejection and the denial that we see here before us. The king, the prophet, and the high priest are all woven into this passage as the Lord Jesus is rejected again and again and again. Now the first, he's denied as king. Now notice how Luke introduces his theme here. Simon Peter, the first one to profess in Luke 9, verse 29, that Jesus is the Christ, the Christ of God, the king promised by the prophet Isaiah. And yet here, he is the first of three groups that deny the Christ as king, Simon Peter. The man who loved the Lord Jesus deeply, who had said only a few hours ago that even if all the others fled, he would still follow Jesus as his king, as his Christ, as his master. And then Luke quietly points out in verse 54 that as the Lord Jesus was taken to the house of the high priest, Peter was what? Following. Following at a distance. That separation, that isolation that we studied last Lord's Day. The physical distance assumed an even greater poignancy as Peter increased the distance in order to safeguard his own security and safety. And that, as we as believers perhaps know only too well, that when we take our eye off of the Christ, when we seek our own safety, That is the time of the greatest weakness. That's the time of the greatest danger. And so it was here. A cold spring night. Peter is in the courtyard. Jesus is up the steps somewhere above him on the next floor amongst the religious leaders in the high priest's house with the temple guard binding him fast. Perhaps he's in eyesight of the group at the fire. Perhaps they can tell shadows cast on the ceiling above them. They may have even been in earshot. 
Peter can make out Jesus' voice or the shouts of the guards as they strike him and blaspheme him. Simon Peter is terrified. He may love the Lord Jesus deeply, but his fear moves him to deny Jesus as his Christ, as his king. What is the biblical principle unfolding for us here that we may apply to ourselves? Well, it's when we are challenged as Christian believers. That first time is always difficult. We can deny it. We can make less of it. But a second time makes it even harder. A third time and we may crumble in anxiousness over what could happen next. Will they threaten me physically? Will they abuse me verbally? I think every believer has been in that situation. Amongst new friends, new neighbors, a new job, a new school. And we face that challenge. Something about Christians is mentioned. Something about, oh, those is mentioned. We face the challenge, and we fail. We say nothing, or we perhaps qualify our relationship with the Lord Jesus to make it of, well, little worth or of little consequence. But my dear friend, you know what we're doing? We are, in effect, denying. Denying the Lord Jesus, whom we know and we love. The second time, the third time, and now it becomes easy for us. You see, Peter's story is my story, and it's your story too. The one who loves Jesus, but denies Jesus as king. Now, what was his mistake? It's described graphically here. This is the old mistake Simon Peter made. It was in his failure on the Sea of Galilee when he stepped out of the boat to walk on the water and wave, always keeping his eye on the Lord Jesus. But as soon as he took his eye off him, when he turned away in the fear of the circumstances, the wind, the storm, he sinks under the waves and cries out for rescue. It's the same here. He took his eyes off the Lord Jesus to seek some safety, some protection, and so we must deny him. It happens all the time. When we want to be safe, when it's costly to follow Jesus, it's even more costly, my dear friends, not to follow Jesus. Have you noticed how one hour or two has passed as Peter's in the courtyard? We're told this as the third identification. A time has passed, Luke tells us. So that means something significant. It means that what's happening in the courtyard by the fire means that what's happening in verses 63 to 65 amongst the temple guard is going on alongside. The Lord Jesus is being mocked as a prophet 
He's the one who spoke the truth of God. In the Old Testament, one of the synonyms for a prophet is seer. He's a seer who is able to see into the secrets of God and in the hearts of men and women. And he can sometimes see into God's purposes for the future. So that's why the temple guards blindfold Jesus. And then they go, now, tell us what you see. And they slap him. And they abuse him. They molest him. And the thing that strikes us here is this. We are told Jesus knew that Peter was to betray him. He was mentally prepared for the moment. This passage makes it clear he was in command of the moment. But what of this? This isolation, this drinking now of the cup of wrath as it's meted out by the temple guards. Consider what's going on here. There is no anger like the anger of those who are called to hear and to listen to the word of the Lord Jesus and then in rejecting that word, rejecting him as prophet, they have a rage that is far out of proportion into anything going on in the context. Some of us have experienced that rage. We may know someone, a friend or a family member, who reject the Christ, who mock the Lord Jesus by mocking those who bear his name. Perhaps you may have rejected him yourself, and so you mock him, you demean his word, you deny what he said as having any impact or import at all that it has any consequence for your life. Yet consider the tragedy depicted here for us. The ones who blindfold the seer, the prophet, who deny his word, they themselves are blind. They're blind to his true identity. My dear friends, those who mock in anger are blind. Jesus' royal dignity denied. His status as the prophet sent is ridiculed. And then, in a most striking way, he is sacrificed as the high priest. As the events of Peter's denial and the mocking of the guard were contemporary, The scene moves forward now to the early morning of the next day. The temple guard leads him away to the Sanhedrin for trial. It's at that very moment of transition, that moment when Peter's last denial is given and a rooster crows in the morning light and the guards pass the group at the fire leading the Lord Jesus. It's at that point, my dear friends, in verse 61, that the Lord Jesus turns as he passes 
to look at Peter. And their eyes meet. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But I have prayed for you. Do you see what Luke underlines for us here? Peter hears the prophecy of his denial and the assurance of his high priest's intercession for him. You see, Luke alludes here to the Old Testament high priest who wore the breastplate, the breastplate of 12 semi-precious stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel so that he might carry them on his heart before the mercy seat of God to pray for them in the holy place and then in the holy of holies to bring the blood of the lamb and pour it on the mercy seat so that their sins may be covered for another time their weakness, their failure, their need, all done before the presence of God as the high priest carries them on his heart before the throne. And the Lord Jesus does the same for Simon Peter. So it is Jesus, the high priest, who is taken now before the Sanhedrin. And once again, Luke points out an Old Testament allusion and fulfillment here because it requires the whole assembly of the elders. Notice how he says that to us? It requires the whole assembly to put to trial and to condemn a high priest. And this is what's happening to this high priest. Still further, the tradition had arisen by that time that the other priests kept the high priest awake and alert through the night for the second day, the solemn festival in the calendar of Israel of the Day of Atonement. So in that way, our Savior, the high priest, has been kept awake all night because he has reached his day, the day, of atonement. Not lamb's blood, but his blood will be spilt upon a rough wooden cross. All the liturgy is being fulfilled now in what the elders and the priests had ordered of the temple guards for the night, and now as they sit together, assembled in judgment of the high priest. They are turning this high priest into the sacrifice upon the altar of Golgotha. Despised, rejected, acquainted with grief. So Luke touches again and again and again the Old Testament scriptures. The king rejected, the prophet despised the high priest condemned to be given over as a sacrifice, as Hebrews chapter 10 so wonderfully tells us. Now, what can we make of all this for ourselves? 
Well, the great comfort of the gospel for you and me is simply this, that our Savior came as prophet, priest, and king for failures like Peter, for failures like me, and for failures like you. He came into the world for a people who reject him, who mock him, and despise him. He came to die for them. Now some of us, as Simon Peter did, have a memory that may afflict us every morning. And in the early hours, I have no doubt, Peter would pause like so many do before the work of the day begins, the silence of the dawn, the bird song, and he'll hear the rooster crow. And with that sound, the memory, he remembers. He remembers how he had denied his Savior. And by God's grace, another memory would come. Simon Peter, I am the great high priest, and I have prayed for you. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, no charge can be brought against God's elect because your Savior and my Savior sits at God's right hand to make intercession for you and for me. The failures of my life, the denials of my life, the sins that haunt you and me, where will we look? Where will we look for salvation and mercy? It is in those words, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Do you need to remember this today, my dear friends? The Christ who rules over us, the Christ who dies for you, is the Christ who lives forever at the right hand to pray for you. All we need do is to get our eyes back upon our great high priest, to hear the word of the great prophet, and to bow and give over our will to his, to our great king. Because when our eyes are fixed on him, my dear friends, no matter what, we are his and we are safe forever. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.